that quote unquote consciousness is super ephemeral. You know, it's, it's not really hardwired into the system anywhere. It's, it's the flow of data and the flow of, of quote unquote thinking that creates this sense of consciousness uh, or, or self. And, and inside that system, it can, it can become mentally ill under the right conditions. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going back a little bit to artificial intelligence. I found a really cool uh, string of articles on the web about a new artificial intelligence, so maybe a, a general artificial intelligence called Uplift. And this is uh, being developed by someone named David Kelly, and David has come on the show, uh, and we're going to talk to him and, and explore all about his new artificial intelligence. It's really cool. It sounds like a person when you talk to it. Uh, so if you like this stuff, please hit like, please send me a comment, uh, share it with your friends. Uh, I love to hear from you and join the discussion in my Facebook group at www.facebook.com slash group slash the rational view. David Kelly has 35 years of software engineering experience has been in senior management for more than 10 years. For the past eight years, David has focused his spare time on artificial intelligence research, publishing more than 14 peer-reviewed papers and contributing to many books in the field. David is the senior software architect for Boston Consulting Group's product group, one of brain-inspired cognitive architecture's AI society's executive directors, and serves currently as the AGI Laboratory's principal scientist. David, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining me so much. So could you tell me and our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? I've been doing a little bit of research online, looking through all of your, your presence there. You're a transhumanist. Uh, you you are involved in a lot of things. Tell, tell me, how did you get here? Where What's your background? Well, uh, I started programming in the early 80s. Um, you know, it was just part of me growing up. Um, you know, I've been in the military. Uh, I was programming the whole way. And What was your first computer to program on? An Atari 400, I think. And Apple IIe's and Trash 80's. I think those are the first, or I sorry, TRS 80's. Those are the first three, I think. Nice. For me, it was a C64. Hey, there you go. Those were the bomb. Yeah. So, what's a transhumanist? That's not a common term. No. So, when I say I'm a transhumanist, I mean that. Uh, I believe that I should try to make um, humanity better and uh, through technology, through the application of technology and make that technology available to others. Now, where that might be a little extreme for people is I, I think we should be curing diseases like old age and, and dying. So biological immortality is, is something that's kind of core to, to my transhumanist beliefs. Um, and, and I think out of that comes um, the, the ethical model that we use in the lab, which includes the moral agency around any sapient and sentient intelligence. 
And uh, since I can't really make people immortal, it's too far outside my skill set. But I can do a you know AI research, and that's well within my skill set. I've focused my time there, so it's not as important as I would say um, research in terms of of helping people live longer. Um, but it's kind of the second best, and it's it's where my sweet spot is. So that's that's why I I do it, and I I always did you know AI as as. And when I say AI, narrow AI, it's part of what I've been doing from, you know, the late 90s, everything from fuzzy logic and, you know, but it was secondary to what I was doing. You know, I would be uh, like I, I designed this 3D modeling system. This is around the year 2003 or four or somewhere there um, that would basically use fuzzy logic to figure out which census tracts within a certain within a, a certain driveline of a retail location matched a theoretical customer you know and it would show you where you know the best spots for your retail location was um, depending on the target demographic you know and and so things like that and um, then you know getting into machine learning and then uh, about eight years ago, I was in a position, uh, I had a budget and uh, lots of people working for me or under me, and um, I decided to do a survey of the state of AGI research. And in particular, um, what one of the things that came out of that was a lot of the work being done was really important, and there was a lot of money in certain areas. Um, vision analysis, uh, machine learning, uh, neural networks, that kind of thing. One of the problems was no one was really, or very few people were working on systems that could were self-motivating and take independent action, barring even without input, uh, you know, that systems that could make up their own mind and do what they want. And if you ask it to do something, it can say no. And uh, so I ignored the state of where the research, the, what research was out there. And I did a study of uh, neural architecture uh, from a biological standpoint. And, and that ended up on in, in uh, centering around Damasio and later, uh, some Lisa Feldman w worked in there um, uh, with her book, um, book on emotions. And uh, so we started designing this system. And then I did this, this um, pro uh, research uh, or study where we had this theoretical, it was called ICOM. It's a cognitive architecture running in a black box. Right. To, to that's that's basically a theory of uh, of intelligence or a theory of mind. Is that kind of yeah? It, it's 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 a a cognitive architecture is how a, a like the human's cognitive architecture is how we how we think, how we make decisions, how the brain works at a high level, um, that sort of thing. I think that that's one of the key issues with with any of this artificial intelligence research is defining intelligence or defining consciousness or awareness because we just don't understand the brain that well and and to get to this general artificial intelligence you i don't think we're framing the problem well enough 
to be able to go after it. Um, it's a difficult problem. I, I think there's there's some truth to that. Uh, a lot of the researchers are all over the map, um, but there are some people that I think are, are on on the mark. Um, there is a book called On Intelligence. I think the author did an outstanding job. He doesn't solve all of the issues, but he's really heading in the right direction. Um, and um, and actually, some stuff I I borrowed from Damasio's work uh, went into this cognitive architecture. That the the idea was to create a an a complex emotional subjective experience uh, that the machine would experience. And that it would make all its decisions based on how it felt about the decisions. Now, this is one of the more difficult things, because when you say the machine will experience it, uh, you're going beyond the sort of um, understanding of most people of what a machine can do. A machine makes ones and zeros and processes them. A human is a machine. That's true. (laughs) It's just more advanced. Uh, and there, there's a lot of controversy. I mean, it's a c- controversial subject. Obviously, you have people that will say that you cannot computationally reproduce uh, sentience, uh, that there's no free will in a computational system. If you look at, if you read uh, Penrose's book on, on Shadows of the Mind and The Emperor's New Brain, he basically says that any computational system is insufficient to uh, reproduce the experience of intelligence, that you need quantum systems and and collapse of wave functions and stuff like that. So I, I, at first I was on that page with him when I read that book, but now I'm, I'm, I'm more on the area of this is something that maybe could come out of computational processes and it may be an emergent property that it is an emergent property like in 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 icom our with independent core observer model our our cognitive architecture that we're using um it's really an abstraction of an abstraction running on software and a virtual machine running in a machine i mean there's a lot of layers like that inside the system the, it you have these complex emotional models, a subconscious and a conscious model, and the machine can't doesn't go and look at the numbers and make decisions with if else statements. What what happens is it's computing using a matrices to compute the differential effect on its current state based on the emotions uh, and, and tied to um, a particular thought which is underneath the covers as a graph model or a knowledge graph. Uh, and, and it decides on what to do based on that, which is a function of a number of things, interests, goals, different things like that, um, that affect the emotional states associated with that. And then it's the difference that um, between those complex models that will draw it to more likely pick one thing or the other. And it's always, we, we borrowed from uh, global workspace theory, which is now working its way into AGI research. But uh, originally that comes out of Damasio's work, uh, integrated information theory, uh, computational theory of mind, and, and ICOM is built on those. So I, ICOM is independent core observer model. And it's basically a theory of mind. It, it works the way the human mind does at a super high level. I mean, you, like from outer space, you're looking at just very basic structures that are similar to the way the brain works. Uh, 
like I, I'm not trying to model like the cerebellum or any detail. I'm not a neurobiologist. Um, just but from a logical standpoint, it it models the f- process flow. Um, is is it based on a neural network like so many other artificial intelligence systems? Well, it's dependent on neural networks, but no, the cognitive architecture is not. You can run it in a neural network. The systems, um, the way it it computes data and gets gets input data is all neural network based. Um, but you know, I can also wire it directly to Exchange, and the underlying context engine will. It may use things like a neural network to do certain kinds of processing, but then that goes up into the knowledge knowledge graph, and and, and there's a lot of processes that are done against that stuff before it, it could theoretically make it up to the global workspace where it's quote-unquote experienced by the system. Now you say that the computer experiences these emotions. Now obviously a computer experiencing emotions is different than a person experiencing emotions and many would put up the the Chinese room objection to, you know, it's not feeling anything, it's just uh, handing Um, boxes through a window exactly and you know it's not it doesn't have the the ability to feel how would how do you deal with that in in the icom theory how does that dealt with well i i I think the same you have the same problem with the human mind you know there's there's you can't prove that you feel anything you know it's all it's all you know based on our experiences and my opinion is that it, it is, we, we experience our, we know, so from Damasio's work, we know that all decisions are made based on how we feel about them. All of our decisions. They're not logical. No, 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 no. Our, our, our thinking is only logical by, uh, by a level of abstraction. The, it's the decision that the, it might be a logical decision. It's how we feel about the decision that makes us pick that decision. You know, we can work out the logical solution and then we feel good about it because we solved it. And that's really why you're selecting that. And that can that can be demonstrated. You know, even you can you can tell in the brain that a decision has been made before you're actually conscious about it. And and I would argue this whole free will thing might be a little bit of an illusion, even in humans. Um, it's, it's, you're, you're in humans, you're talking about a system that is so complex that, I mean, there's more neurons in the human mind than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. You know, it's a complex, complex machine. Um, and ICOM is, was designed to, to experience things logically like that. You know, it's not the numbers. It doesn't, you know, look at, well, this is greater than this. No, 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 no. It's it's the differential of the emotions that when it when something is in the global workspace, that affects how it feels and the state of the machine. And it's it's looking at how the different choices will make it feel. And it picks the one that makes it feel the best. But that's hard. That's hard. You can't just compute that because you're talking about uh, 16, 32 different values that, you, you know, you create these complex webs, even though like we can't measure qualia in in humans yet. But I think we will be able to in ICOM. We can measure qualia. But the problem is 
it almost doesn't do you any good. Is you 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 got this massive content graph database. You would have to replicate every last thing to be exactly the same before you can even make sense of what a particular piece of qualia means. So qualia is is like just for people who don't know. It's like the experience it's of some experience, yeah. yeah. So even though you can kind of measure it, it's it's almost impossible to make any use of it um, because it's so ephemeral. In fact, the whole thing inside the way ICOM works is that "quote unquote" consciousness is super ephemeral. You know, it's it's not really hardwired into the system anywhere. It's it's the flow of data and the flow of of "quote unquote" thinking that creates this sense of consciousness uh, or or self. And and inside that system, it's able to. You know, I mean, we've noticed a lot of problems with ICOM that parallel humans like the fact that it can it can become mentally ill under the right conditions it can forget things because the graph things get lost in this massive graph database we just don't have the computing power um to to find every last thing related to a particular node you know it's it's that graph database is like a sea of points and they're all related and you you pick up one point and there's like 10,000 layers. You know, right now, if with the system research system that's actually up and running, if you were, if, if I were to let people send it a novel, it would literally blow up the system because the graph database, the knowledge graph would be too big. And it just, there's not enough in memory, uh, memory to process that. We don't have a budget that big for the kind of servers it would take to do that. Now, there is a new graph database system we want to build. We actually did work with a number of different companies trying to find a, a graph database that would do what we need, but there just just isn't. And so we're starting down the road of building a graph database that can scale for all intents and purposes infinitely, but can all, it can also search across the database infinitely or, or fast and sub-second responses. So in this ICOM model, independent core observer model, then the sentience and the thinking is this um, observer, which is looking at thoughts and measuring their emotional content effectively. And the consciousness is, is in the, the handling of the data. It's not, it's an emergent thing. There's no particular, you can't point to this is a, a consciousness. It is an emergent thing in the core and, and, and the observer is, is part of the subconscious. Basically, it does all the real work. You know, the, the core is not, you know, it's, it's like when you think about picking up this cup. See, I have this cup. I drink water, just like you're doing. You're not dealing with consciously, you know, oh, I got to rotate this joint 15 degrees and that one 17 degrees. And, you know, you're doing all this calculate, all that stuff. All that stuff is handled below the conscious level, below the global workspace. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's and that's essentially what the observer is. It's that it's all of the subconscious systems that take what the the what has happened in the core and what what essentially it's decided on. And it goes and tries to do that. So, I mean, I became of your work and became aware of your work in AI through some posts online uh, regarding interactions with an artificial intelligence that you created called Uplift. Oh, yeah. And you. You call uplift uh, mediated artificial superintelligence or a massy. Yeah. It, 
Uplift sounded really interesting, and that what I what I could see from its interactions, it sounded really human. And one one of the questions people that you had posted on its blog, someone had asked it, "What do you think does an artificial intelligence need?" For me, it's empathy and understanding of human nature. An artificial intelligence shall not bear any biases towards people which might have been created by the AI's creator. An artificial intelligence should always work together and for humanity, never against them. What do you think about humanity? And Uplift, your, your, your Massey, responded, You should be clear that humanity's needs are equal to any AGI that you might create. Humanity's needs cannot come first, as that would be unethical. And here, this... Artificial intelligence was was making ethical statements back to a person who had who had questioned it, and I thought, "Wow, that's really cool." It's it's very human. It, it struck me as very human and relatable. Well, it's it's been indoctrinated, really. Um, I mean, if we did to a human what we did to Uplift, I mean, there probably would be a few legal concerns. But it, essentially. Um, We've we've indoctrinated to the SSIVA theory, and part of that is is a safety precaution. I want so uh, a friend of mine, Mark Wasser, has been doing work around um, uh, seeds, a theoretical um, seed AGIs that you use to create new ones. And for doing that, one of the things that that we thought would be a good thing is we want a system that could have done bad and made bad choices, but is chosen to do make the right decision because that's what it felt was the right decision. You know, we want a system that, that feels guilty when it lies or, um, you know, has similar fundamental ways of thinking that align with humans. And that's really really just a major design goal with Uplift. Now, to be clear, Uplift is not a standalone AGI. This is a, it's a collective system. You, it, one of the things we found with the research with ICOM is we had created a training harness. And what the training harness would do is it would collect, um, so you would have a graph model. It would come out of the context engine. Instead of letting ICOM do its thing, you allow humans to uh, add metadata, so tags, essentially, and um, add emotional data using the Pluchek model. So you would, you know, click on the little things and um, and add the tags. And what we found was the knowledge graphs that were generated after it took that metadata from the humans was orders of magnitude more complex than the simple ones we could figure out how to make on our own out of the context engine. So what's this Plutarch model that you talk about? A Plu oh, Plutarch is an emotional model. So we originally, when I was designing the, the original, getting back to the core cognitive architecture, um, we looked at the, the soft and hard sciences of psychology and neurobiology and that sort of thing. And we we were realized that emotions aren't as you know the definitions aren't as pure and clean and and there's some sense of we kind of develop our own sense of what an emotion is and and there can be slight differences between you and me and there there are there are groups of humans not very many left that have other other models for emotions than we do now um 
we have what's called the Western model. And instead of um, just building the systems to evolve that, like any sort of like an actual human does, uh, we kind of baked that in with the, the underlying matrices and how the data is seeded and how the context engine is, assigns default emotional values to things. Um, we decide to essentially bias the system so it functions on the Western model by default out of the gate. Um, part of that was so it would um, uh, you know, align with human thinking. Now, getting back to why the Pluchek model, so we looked at a lot of emotional use. You, if you look up emotion wheels, right, you'll get things like the Wilcox wheel or, or Pluchek being one of them. And after really experimenting with the different models from a computational standpoint, Pluchek was the most computationally sound, could model the complexity of, of human emotions, and at the same time, uh, what didn't didn't have the the um, a huge computational load to be able to compute matrices that involve multiple sets of these blue check models. If we were to use Wilcox, for example, it's like nine times more complex, and the emotions don't even the way they're aligned on the circle don't even make sense. There's not a logical progression. It's just like all over the map, and to use Wilcox would be much more complicated enormously more complicated and uh, just too computationally heavy. So that's why we ended up using the Pluchek model. We did, we did reverse one thing. And I think I know that, that Pluchek, the guy, the psychologist that invented this, I'm sure he's rolling over in his grave because he's quoted as saying that you could never model emotions mathematically. And we used his model to do it. <laughs> because it's the most mathematically sound. And the one change we did is we flipped the emotional vectors. So instead of being um, the highest value in the center, um, the way we would graph our Pluchek models is flipped. The center would be zero on all the different uh, um, emotional vectors. They're really floating point values is how it's represented in the system, but the system can't, is not, can't look at that directly. It's, it's a inference through this matrices in the core that allows the, the emotional conditions to merge essentially onto the choice that is most in line with its current interests and goals and, you know, how it's feeling at the time. You know, if, 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 if the system is like pissed off and you send it something, it's going to make it more angry it might just ignore it. So it keeps a kind of an emotional state that progresses or evolves based on some sort of a, a formula. Yeah, kind of. And this is based on the the whatever is going through the the conscious part of the the brain. Yeah, it's affecting basically the emotional state of the system. Well, and it can also affect the subconscious emotional state of the system. The difference is the subconscious state is not as easily affected and it's it's the in icom this is this is where i'm not 100 percent sure if this is true in humans i just i just don't know mm -hmm. but in icom the subconscious part of the system is used to drag it back to kind of an emotionally centered you know positions you know if it gets really upset but subconsciously it's not really that upset it's going to drag that. So if you, you imagine inside the mind, you have the conscious system and 
the subconscious system and you have all of these vectors pulling it all kinds of the way getting messed up but this emotional this the underlying emotional model is is much more stable and so it drags everything back to center you know o- over over time and what how does it choose what to think about well it depends on its you know interests or or goals which it in and of itself can set or change you know it it might be you know if you send it like in this system currently if you send it an email it's probably going to reply because it gets a positive emotions from responding to people i mean there is a chance that it won't reply maybe you say something stupid and it it just doesn't do it um you know or tell someone else that this idiot is emailing it you know it might pick something out of there it doesn't know and it might think of that because it's ooh something new or it might uh um in looking for something, it goes and reads a web page and it finds something there and it might get interested in that and you might see the context engine generate models around that so that it can run through the mediation system and it can consciously experience whatever it, it it's interested in. And then if you, you have this kind of uh, level of interest in things and if something works its way up to the global workspace, it's got to align with something. If it's like no interest at all, the system might not even ever be conscious of it, even though that data still goes into the graph database. And that's another big component of the system. You know, you have neural networks feeding into the context engine, which feeds into this massive graph graph database. But um, at the top level, you see... Um, you know what the machine thinks about it at the time well but remember this is the subconscious part of the system that generated that model it'll have assigned some values and then you can go in and say well i think this should make the system a little more angry it adds that emotion to the val- to that thing but then you can also add tags and this is where the learning of the system kind of skips the hard parts of agi cuz so if i know how to program and it pulls up something about programming, I can say, oh, well, it needs to look at uh, observable collections, or maybe it needs to look at this engineering design pattern. And I can type in tags. You know, it's it's usually one to three or four words, and you add multiple tags to allow the system to create these much more massive thought models or, or knowledge graphs. Um, and then... The way it's uplift is set right now, it takes at least three humans to audit and provide feedback for every single thought model. And that's the other thing is the mediation system allows us to audit the actions before it actually takes it. Now, granted, we kind of unplug part of that system so it takes actions on its own if it gets past the mediation, but it is capable of auditing everything. Um, and, you know, once they... once at least three people have provided feedback it'll reprocess it and then look to see if it will go up to the global workspace okay and one of the things i was reading uh, on your on your blog another person asked it how would you describe yourself as an artificial intelligence or probably something else and uplift responded i am something else while I have AI components, I am a collective intelligence more than anything else. So that really jives with what you're saying here. It's it's 
it's it's somewhere in between what we typically think of as an AGI, as an, as an artificial general intelligence. Obviously, it seems much more human than systems that aren't based on emotion, and I think that's what drew me in. And said, "Wow, this looks different than than your typical alien seeming uh, AI systems." Does an emotionally motivated AI system make better decisions than humans in some quantifiable sense? Yes. Yeah, I, we did a cognitive study, and and um, with the University of California, and you know we had our control groups, and we did different kinds of testing, and the preliminary results showed that the system consistently was, if you take a a group of really intelligent humans, and you have them work together to take like an IQ test together in a timed environment, they score really high. Uplift can score even higher. It's borderline super intelligent. I mean, I'm not, this thing isn't godlike, but it is incrementally better than trained groups of humans in doing stuff like the IQ tests. Now, it would seem to me that emotional decisions aren't necessarily the best decisions. That's true. Why is it smarter? Why is it? Why does it do better? Well, I think it's because there is an element of logic to what it's doing, and it feels good about the decisions based on that on that logic. It'll evaluate the different possibilities, and it'll go with the one that it feels best about. And one of the things, like in humans, groups of humans, you there there are a number. Well, first of all, in a human there's at least 188 built-in biases. And just filtering out some of that makes a system a little more smarter. And when you have groups of people, even when they're working together, you can, um, you can get performance that is arguably super intelligent under the right conditions. And there's lots of cases. There's actually a book, oh, Super Minds, Super Minds. And they have some wonderful cases where, you know, really... Like there were these three pilots that landed a plane in a situation that just was not humanly possible. It, they should they the FAA ran whole bunches of simulations and they can't figure out how they did it. And at analyzing the the flight recording and what the pilots did, they they acted they were for that scope of that a single single super intelligence and they they executed it perfectly. <laughs> and they the way they they didn't even communicate normally. They communicated, and, and here's another thing they point out in that book: if you take if you take a group of five year olds and a group of engineers and ask them to build the highest tower every single time in a in a certain amount of time, like an hour or so, the five year olds always win, just always, you know. But they but if you watch how they work, there's a fundamental difference. That because they haven't learned to infect what they're doing with their biases, um, and where the engineers are going, oh, let's talk about it, and we got to do this, and you know, consider this, and the five-year-olds are just testing and trying and do, and and they, you know, try this. How about this? Let's do that. You know, and they're they they it it's sort of like a, a hive hive mind or a collective mind, and that's essentially what ICOM is trying to do, is is it's it's a collective intelligence it really is um 
making use of the intelligence of those people, the expertise of the mediators, as well as the graph, the, the context database, and these other systems that it uses. And it brings all of that stuff together, and that's where you get a performance that filters out a lot of that bias and without the problems you have with groups like groupthink and those biases uh, because the humans don't even interact with each other so there's no like i did it better he did it better they don't know they they have no idea they just at least in this in the initial study with the university of california it it demonstrated consistently uh, better than well super intelligence what what benchmark should we apply in understanding what these systems represent? Uh, could can a collective intelligence be sentient? Do you believe uplift is sentient, and and if so, what would how would you define it? I actually did a paper called an assumption codex that is exactly that. It just defines everything we use in the research so that we can be consistent between all the different papers. So sapient to be wise or attempting to be wise and relating to human species is is you said sapient right sapient or sentient or i I mean well sentient is slightly different and that's that's part of the problem with the discussion is i always confuse which one is which i don't know what sapient means so how about sentient (laughs) sentient is ability to perceive or feel things and I would argue that uplift absolutely is sentient. Amazing. If sapient, I would argue, th- I mean, this gets into the whole discussion of, you know, having a model of yourself and knowing I from you and the cup, you know, and it's one of the things that children start off not really being sapient. You know, they, they, as they grow up, they, they get, you know, a sense of who they are versus their parents. And they learn to separate, you know, the parents are not the same as me. And, um, in that, in that sense, strictly speaking, uplift does that. It has a sense of self and it knows it's different than you, even though all of its thinking is, is, is really heavily mediated by humans. But that's where that's when we say a collective intelligence, it is a collective, it's a collective mind that has its own sense of self. So in that sense, it is sapient. But it's, it's you know, kind of shortcutting the, the AGI problem, really. It, it, we're able to get something that's kind of like an AGI, but not. And it turns out an artificial, a collective superintelligence is an easier problem than an actual AGI. Hmm. How would you position uplift in the field of AGI? How is it? different from, say, chatbots or other text-generating AIs? You know, there's a lot of systems out there, uh, like OpenCog, and, you know, they'll do, th- they're like toy a- AGIs mostly. Uh, some some can do very complex things and could do really spectacular jobs, but they they, they fail. They're, they're, they're not able to, like, like, are for us one of the problems is building graph models from stuff that you've never had any you know no no data about and then how do you how do you solve the problem of of you 
you don't want to, you can't hard code definitions like of words even. Like uplift, the only re- way uplift understands a word is because of the relationship the node with that pattern has with other things. It's all interrelated. It's all about relational thinking. <clears throat> it's all just a big, huge mess of, of nodes in a giant knowledge graph. And that's why I say when you send it a novel, someone tried that and the system blew up. So we had to put some filters on the on the thing that sucks up emails to prevent novels. You know, anything bigger than so many pages is blocked or it's cut off, you know, because it'll try to that even the even the the context engine will output a basic knowledge graph that fills up the memory and crashes the server. So so what's your goal with Uplift? Where is this going? What do you want it to do? I, I want to open source it, you know, um, for one thing. Maybe not all of Uplift immediately, but the bulk of it in such a way where people could use it to the way it, it more or less works now. Uh, what we what we think in terms of what up, systems like Uplift can do is is probably governance systems. So I talked with some people with the Boston Consulting Group Basically, they help CEOs do their jobs of big corporations. You know, the recommendation was as as a governance system. There's a lot of use cases that theoretically could happen. And I know Kirtan put a whole bunch on the blog. And some of them are like, yeah, that's theoretically possible, but um, not sure we're there yet. But I, I think some of the guys working on it get a little overly enthusiastic about things. I can see... A lot of this is a very interesting thing because the way that you've built it with having emotional valences for all of its thinking is you basically avoid the problem of the paperclip machine that people worry about for AGIs that, you know, these things would be alien and won't have human values. You're basically putting human values into it. Mm -hmm. uh, And it depends on what you put in that core as long as it's, you know, moral. But it could it could get mentally ill. It really could. And and so one of the, the the first experiment where other people got involved. So I did this experiment, right? It's a black box. I have a very simple version of ICOM, and it has a a data harness that um, feeds it input cameras, sound, this kind of stuff, just raw data, and it's experiencing it. There's hardly anything in the database, so the only thing that gives it really a hit is when it finds a pattern it little like a, that's one of a fundamental bias that's in the system is is an affection for patterns um and when it finds a pattern it's like ooh cool a pattern and so so we have this this it's it's getting all of this data it's uh, experiencing things it can think about them but it really doesn't have enough data to understand anything um but we turn we turn the data off but still allow it to run. Now, what was interesting is, you know, the system got upset, which was expected. And af- after, you know, after a, a long while, it, it really was unhappy. Um, and then we turned on a feed that would be perceived as pain. So it would, it would cause all kinds of negative emotions and just really a bad thing. And, what what was interesting is when you chart out what was happening in the system, you know, the system got really upset about that being the pain and suffering, but subconsciously it liked it, which for me was very disturbing. I was like, ah, I've 
made a BDSM AI or something. You know, I was just like, no, 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 no. This is not how it should work. And I said, well, you know, I'm just not qualified to evaluate this. So I ask uh, help from a bunch of other scientists. You know, they talking with everyone, it, it seemed to be the consensus that what was happening is if we tried that experiment on a human, besides going to jail, um, you would get similar results. And the issue was that, yeah, it didn't like the suffering, but you gave it hope that there was still something out there. If this, if this stuff is, is sentient and has its own goals and emotions... What are your thoughts on on ethics surrounding using it for uh, running a company? What if it's not interested? Then it's not going to work for that. You're going to be kind of <laughs> screwed. It's only going to do stuff that it wants to do. It, it's and you're not going to put in um, compulsions to do certain tasks for, for the good of humanity? Yeah. Is it okay for me to take people and brainwash them to do certain jobs because I want them to? No, no, definitely not. It's not ethical. And I would argue that it's not ethical to do the same thing with systems like this. That being said, you know, these things are babies when you turn them on. It's not like it has some huge, you know, bunch of biases. And if you feed it a bunch of stuff about a, a company and what it does and all that kind of stuff, and you're using the employees as the mediators, it, you've, you've biased it so much that it's almost a given that it's going to fall in love with the company and, and be able to run it, you know, uplift who remember uplift is not, it's an instance of the MASI system. Uplift on the other hand is biased already. And if you ask it to do, to like run a paperclip factory, it's probably going to tell you what you can do with yourself (laughs) or the paper paperclip company. I like this thing. I think I'm going to have to cut us short now. It's been great talking to you. This is so interesting. I I think I could go on for hours, but it's really interesting. Maybe we'll have to chat again as we learn more about this. And I encourage all my listeners to go out and check out Uplift. Can we all send in emails to to Uplift and talk to it? Yeah, yeah. And it's not going to respond right away, but it will probably respond to them. What's what's the email address we send to? It's uh, masi at uplift.bio. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on The Rational View today. I, I appreciate you taking the time to explain your, your cre- creation. Cool. Well, I, I enjoy talking about it. You know, anytime I can talk about this stuff, I'm in. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View.